Welcome to Aliens Land Here. So how how do you even have time to listen to all these podcasts? Do you listen to them while you work? I listen to them while I play Hearthstone. Okay. So after everyone's asleep and I am playing video games, uh, I also listen to podcasts at the same time. And I don't listen to that many podcasts. I listen to maybe six. Well, some of them don't update very often. Like the Stack Exchange podcast doesn't update very often. So I listen to ATP, Core Intuition, Debug, Developing Perspective, uh, Garnet on Games, The Incomparable but only some of the episodes, Gruber but only some of the episodes, Pragmatic, Release Notes, The Stack Exchange Podcast, and that's it. See, you can at least listen to some episodes. I have this problem where if I'm subscribed to something, I need to look at everything that's on there. I had the same problem, but then I realized that it was not worth my time to clean everything, and I started deleting things that looked not interesting, and I have been very happy that I did that. See, it's not even just podcasts, it's also anything with an RSS. Uh, yeah, I do still have that problem. I will go through my entire RSS feed, often also while I'm playing Hearthstone. So I'll be listening to a podcast, going through my RSS feeds, and playing Hearthstone at the same time. It works well because it's a, a game that's turn-based, so I'll do, all that, I'll do all the RSS reading while I'm waiting for my opponent's turn. Yeah, I mean, with me, I had 475 unread entries on my RSS reader. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> If I had been, if I hadn't had at least three hundred queued up at the end of the day, then I'd been seriously slacking off at work. See, I get anxious when I have too many entries within my RSS reader. I get anxious, and I start having to go through and prune, and I feel like I'm just cat. I'm falling behind in everything in life. Yeah, I I do that with when I've gone on like vacation or something. Like when I went on that cruise and I came back and I had enough. RSS entries that Feedly would no longer count them. So there were there were individual feeds that had more than like 800 there and at that point I wasn't about to go through every single one. I had to go and pick c- entire categories where I'm just like nope, not reading that. Do you have a pro account with them? No. I thought about it, but I mean you got your pro account before they stopped offering like the lifetime thing, right? I got the pro account the night they offered the lifetime thing. Yeah, that was the only time that I considered doing it, and I didn't act in time. I don't know the difference now, but I figured it was a good idea to support them, and that if they stayed around, there would be less of a chance of it dropping off the map the same way Reader does, or Reader yeah. did. The Reader apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, I used to love Reader. Yeah, me too. Do you think RSS is better off since Reader went away? No. Even though Reader was a monopoly, basically, it still provided it provided what I still feel is the best interface, and it also raised awareness for RSS essentially because everyone had their Reader and everyone knows Google and their products are all big. Before Google Reader went away, I started using the app Reader, the R E E D E R app, mm-hmm. which I'm actually am pretty happy with that. Oh, I actually haven't used that one, 
I've always been web-based because I always check for my... The, the exception is on my uh, iPhone where I use Byline. And I use Byline mostly because I got it way back when it was almost the only feed reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was bummed for a while. I had to go to a web interface and I had to go to uh, Feedly itself when the whole reader apocalypse happened. And the apps that I was using, Reader, it took time for him to get the uh, support for Feedly in. Mm-hmm. But since there's an app now, I went back to that, which I enjoy it a lot, whole lot more. So, what the hell happened with Coda? It turns out that it was a problem with the iCloud syncing. So, within Coda, the stats went away again. I went into Coda one day, and the sites went away. So I went into the settings and saw that the iCloud settings turned itself on again. So I had to go back over to my old laptop, copy the settings over, turn Coda back on, and then turn iCloud on. So my settings are stored within iCloud again. It's just, if they weren't stored in iCloud, I can't risk it turning itself on, which seems to be a Coda bug and having my sites go away. Is there a risk that this might happen again? Uh, I don't think so, as long as I keep the iCloud settings on. Oh, okay. Although it would suck if, for some reason, my data within iCloud went away. Yeah, that sounds scary. Is there? Do you have a way to back it up outside iCloud? I mean, did you? You did. Um, yeah, you had. That's how you got it back in the first place, right? Yeah, what I did is, on my old machine, I turned off iCloud, which, if you do that, you start to see the files populate locally within the application directory. So what I did then is then I backed that up and then copied it over to the new machine for it to work. So if the same thing happens, I'll do something similar. Yeah. So another piece of follow-up is on the YouTube API. Um, You asked me if it had an API and I basically said no. The answer is closer to sort of because it has an official API, but it doesn't have like a way to do it without a web view. There's an API and then there's, there's a library that you can download like either with CocoaPods or whatever that you can get from Google that has a iOS shim, but it still goes and creates an iOS web view to go and display and control the video. So the answer is sorta. So may have noticed that uh, Mark sounds a little different this time. That means he got his microphone and sounds better. What do you think? Uh, so far, I'm pretty pleased with it. Let's take a step back. What microphone did you get? Oh, I got a Blue Yeti, which isn't that what you have? No, I have a Blue Snowball, which is sort of a step down from what you have. Okay. Yeah, I went on the wire cutter and decided to look through what the best microphone is. And I mean, that's what they recommended. They had a step up, which is around $250, but I figured the features it had wasn't worth it. The sure one. Yeah, that one. For this, I basically just wanted something that makes me sound like I'm not on a Skype call. Yeah, that that definitely is an improvement. And even though we're on the call, I can even tell over the compressed audio that it's an improvement. Sure. It has a warmth to it, which the other microphones I have didn't have. Right. It was kind of odd, actually. The last recording, I was forced to use the internal speaker on my MacBook. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Yeah, um, I have a Logitech QuickCam, but for some reason there was some kind of buzz on it, which I wasn't able to track down. 
It's it's sort of odd that it sounded worse than the the internal speaker. It's entirely possible that since the camera is pretty old, I think it's about five years old. Oh yeah, so it's that, older than your laptop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, by a long ways. It may be on its last legs. And that's possible. Or I mean, it, it just could be that the technology improved. So see, I don't remember there being the buzz like that on oh. the quick cam before. Well, it wasn't just the buzz, like the tone and quality of your voice sounded better with the internal Mac speaker than it did on that one as well. I guess it's a testament to Johnny Ive. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and it could just be related to the, 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 the way that it was distorted over the compressed sending to me over the internet. Right. That's entirely possible too. So, so do you think that this is going to make us sound more like a real podcast this time? Oh, I hope so. I really do hope so. Not that that's going to make a difference with people listening. I mean, nah. I think that has more to do with quality. Yeah. Once our, once our, once we're able to actually speak properly. Oh, that could be an idea for a site. A site that helps you with your uh, podcasting skills. There you go. I think there are sites that focus on podcasting, though I don't know how much, how many of them focus on the content of what you're saying and how to prepare or anything like that. Like, what kind of stuff does it have? Like, what kind of quality does it look for? Well, there's stuff that talks about what, how you should be encoding the MP3s, what you should do about tagging things, how you should upload them to iTunes, things like that. But as far as I know, that there's, there's nothing that talks about how you should present ideas on a podcast, how you should prepare for a podcast. But I think that those kinds of things are more in the area of a speaking class like some or, or something that would be uh, improved by doing Toastmasters or whatever. I actually don't even know what a Toastmaster is. So Toastmasters is like a club, and the whole point of this club is to give speeches and do other sorts of uh, public speaking, at, either as an exercise to get better at it or just because you like it. Oh, so that kind of toast. Okay. Yes, that kind of toast. Not like mm. put in your toaster and it gets tasty toast. <laughs> <laughs> See, programmers are a funny sort. They'll name things after just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the GIMP. The GIMP is a good example of this. So I didn't know. I mean, I'm thinking there's languages like Python after, you know, Monty Python, mm -hmm. and then alternatives like Parrot. So I didn't know if it was a programmer thing at all. Yeah, no, it's more of a mainstream thing. Got it. Well, hopefully, hopefully this time we won't have to do any editing where my audio seeps onto your audio. I think, I think your new headphones, your new headphones should uh, help with that. Here, hoping so. So for those of you who are listening, the one or two people, I got some new headphones. PSU M4U-2 headphones. That's that's a really easy to say name there. What they are, the recommendation from the wire cutter, which seems to be where I go for for recommendations in general, they recommended the M4U-1 headphones as the best $300 headphones you can get. Now, the difference between those headphones... And the M4U-2 headphones is the M4U-2 headphones have audio cancelling. So they're the exact same headphones, except that the ones that you got have uh, noise cancellation? Yes, that's correct. Which it ends up being about 100 bucks more. Okay. Now, the reason they didn't recommend these compared to the Dash 1s is mainly price. 
but also with the M4U-1, it seemed to have better quality than the Bose that they had recommended on the site. You mean for the noise canceling? Well, yeah, the um, the M4U-1 has better audio quality when you're listening to things, mm-hmm. and the Bose has better noise canceling. Yeah, I actually have the Bose Quiet Comfort 15. Is that the one they recommended for the noise canceling? Uh, I'm not sure. It's the uh, they run around three hundred dollars. Yes, yeah, it's about three hundred bucks. So yeah, yeah, that's the one that I have for noise canceling because I was previously working in an environment where if I didn't use noise canceling headphones, I would be distracted all day. See, and that was the main reason I didn't get the Bose. The Bose seemed to have lesser quality compared to better noise canceling. And in my case, I don't really use the noise canceling that much. Mm-hmm. So, so how is the audio quality compared to what you had previously? Also, what did you have previously? I had the uh, Sennheiser OCX 685i, which they were basically some in-ear exercise headphones, which I'd been using before for workout. Mm-hmm. I'd use them for just about everything. Now, the issue with that and the this podcast is that there was some bleeding over into the recording, so I decided to finally take the plunge and get some decent over the ears. Yeah, these are sealed over ear, right? Yeah, sealed over ear. Pretty sure they're sealed over ear. <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> when I listen to the audio later. Yeah. Well, one thing I have to say, when you first get some new headphones and listen to music for the first time, do not listen to Nine Inch Nails in order to test your headphones. <laughs> pure, pure static in the intentional static in all of the, in many of the songs. Um, <clears throat> okay, when you get a nice set of headphones, you tend to notice things that you didn't notice before. Okay. When you listen to music. And in the case of Nine Inch Nails, I listened to Hurt. Okay. And on the left side, I kept hearing this kind of like static that would cut in and out. And I thought that it was the headphones cutting out or the wire to the headphones cutting mm-hmm. out. But in order to test it, I had to go into the phone and change it to mono to <laughs> see if the same thing would happen. And mono sounded exactly, you know, the same. Fine. Only, the, oh, oh it, it didn't sound, you didn't hear it in both ears then? Then when you switch it to mono? Well, the way it mixes. Okay. The way it mixes, there's more... Um, you actually don't get that cutting out feeling or that cutting out sound when it's on mono because you still have audio coming through on both sides. Right. As opposed to one side where it's like there's that hit, you know, the hiss or the static or whatever, and then it stops. Mm -hmm. And then there's the hiss and the static, and then it stops. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah, I I can understand how that would cause a problem when you're testing headphones. Though... um when you're listening to Nine Inch Nails, the the little things like that are part of the appeal, I think. Oh, it's absolutely great once you're sure that your headphones are working. <laughs> uh, so what did you end up testing on after that, then? Um, I listened to some podcasts. I listened to... I just put on some basic stuff from Spotify. Mm-hmm. I'm going to confess that I have this... Uh, I have been listening to dubstep lately, which I don't know why. Yeah, oddly enough, I, I I have been listening to some as well. I don't know why yeah. either. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of addictive, but not like in a positive sound construction sort of way. Just more of like a, it's fun to listen to this. It's like a guilty pleasure. I agree. It's like pop music for people who can't really admit. It's like pop music for s- schizophrenics. 
Dear God. <laughs> but I think what's good about it is that since there are very limited lyrics, it makes it easier to do work to. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. Yeah. And, like and there, Yeah. A lot of electronica is that way as well. A lot of trance and whatnot. Yeah. I find myself listening to that specifically because if there are lyrics, a lot of the time it pulls me out of whatever problem I'm trying to get done. Yeah. It, well, I, I, so, so far as getting work done, ideally I don't want any music at all. But if I'm using music to do something rote and repetitive, like if I'm listening to music, I'll get a little bit more inspired to work quickly, but I can't think as deeply about a problem. Yeah. And there was actually some article that I had read lately. I think, um, I think it was on Intervision about music not helping right. problems. In, and, and there's a lot of actual literature on the subject. The book, oh, the book People Wear. They, they do a lot of inspection of offices and a lot of re- they, they talk about a lot of research that was done measuring performance. And they found that while you could work well with music, it wasn't the same kind of work that you could do. Anything that required a jump in creativity, uh, like for example, if there's a simple, clever way to solve a problem and a root wrote ordinary way to solve a problem that uh, would work the person that was listening to music is much more likely to use the the rote obvious way and the person that's not listening to music is much more likely to figure out the clever simpler uh, more elegant way of doing it i could totally see that it might explain a lot in my work actually how's that that a, a lot of the best ideas i get are when i'm not in front of the computer not listening to music so uh, yeah, I, I, I get so many, and, I, and I'm sure this is a common thing. I get so many ideas when I'm in the shower. Yeah, same thing. And it, it's probably a combination of like the neurochemicals that are released from the sensation of the warmth and whatnot on the skin and general relaxation and whatnot that sort of puts you into a different frame of mind that allows you to think about problems in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about... The noise canceling. Does it when I'm using my 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 Bose ones? It's very effective in making it so I'm not hearing the outside sounds, or if I do hear it, that they don't bother me. But it does have the effect of feeling like there's a pressure in my ears, and I was wondering if you get the same thing. Actually, I do. Um, you had pointed that out earlier before I ended up receiving the headphones and that was one of the first things i tried out Mm -hmm. which there is this increased pressure it's not enough for it to be distracting however i imagine if i listened to stuff with noise canceling on for any extended length of time i can imagine that getting to me yeah for for me it sort of it felt like i was going to fall asleep at some point like it made me tired huh that's weird i'm pretty sure that i'm in the minority there but I can imagine that it's, I'm probably not the only person that happens to. So what did you end up getting this week? I got fun toys. Uh, I got a uh, FLIR 1. I got a, the, do you know what the FLIR 1 is? Um, yeah, I checked on the website, but you'd probably let everybody else know just so they'll know what so, it is. 
So the FLIR one is a thermal camera. Uh, it can see people's heat. Do you know the difference between the a camera like the FLIR one and the Connect or the IR camera that's on the top of the Oculus or that that, is, that look views the Oculus? Actually, I do not. So tell me a little bit more about the difference there. So the the FLIR one is a thermal camera and it helps to go into different spectrums of light here. The visual, the visible spectrum is around 500 nanometers. The IR on the Oculus camera. So the, the way that the camera that looks at the Oculus headset works is it just has a visible light filter on the front of the camera. So it only sees the near infrared. And that's, that is a, a little bit bigger than 500 nanometer. The, the connect picks up probably around 800 to 900 nanometers and it has an infrared emitter in order to be able to see that light because it's not naturally emanating from things now a thermal camera like the FLIR one has the ability to pick up things further in the thermal infrared range which is i believe around one micrometer to about a hundred micrometer wavelength and that is the area that is correlated with things that are emitting heat so now note you can warm things up with other wavelengths of light like any wavelength has energy and can heat stuff up but things that are hot will generally emit radiation in that particular wavelength so you can see them and that is what the this thermal camera picks up so in the case of the Oculus, why would they choose to not have the same kind of spectrum as the FLIR? Well, the most obvious answer is that it's really expensive to do. Do you know why it's expensive? Do tell. So the, there's a couple of reasons why it's expensive. One is that the sensor itself is expensive to produce. Um, for example, the, the, the FLIR 1 only has a resolution of 80 by 60 pixels. So it's really tiny resolution, and it only does it at like nine hertz. So these sensors are are, are much more difficult to produce, and thus more expensive. And, and I'm sure it doesn't help that FLIR is basically like the only game in town. So FLIR, if you don't know, it stands for Forward Looking Infrared, and it is both a type of sensor and the name of the company that makes it. Okay. So I mean, I I can see why. Oh, the the other reason that it's expensive is that glass, like regular glass that you would use for a lens, is not IR transparent. So you can't use regular glass as your lens because the IR will not go through it and thus you cannot see it. What does it end up using instead? That, I don't know. Uh, some sort of other IR transparent material, but I don't, I don't know what it is. So what can you do with it exactly? Like I said, it detects heat. So anytime that you have a use case for detecting heat. So an example would be checking the, the temperature of, well, I mean, the ob most obvious example is going around your house and pointing it at everything and going, ooh, that's 70 degrees. Ooh, that's 80 degrees. But more practically, you can aim it at things like your windows and check to see if there's any heat leaks in your windows. You can aim it at uh, your walls and see if there's any gaps in the insulation in your walls. 
you can go and aim it at your ceiling if you live in a condo, and it can be an early warning uh, that uh, the person above you has a leak because the there will be a heat difference in the ceiling before you can see the watermarks. So is this an app, I take it, within the um, that you get along with the device? So yes, there there is an app that you get the, the, the device. So the device itself is... I guess I probably should have described this first. The device itself has is basically a giant iPhone case. There's a big case that has the camera in it, and the, the case also has a battery in it that attaches to either an iPhone 5 or an iPhone 5S. And the way that they have it designed is there's two interlocking cases, one inside the other. So the big one that you would not usually want to carry around with you that has the thermal camera goes inside a smaller, thinner case that allows you to put it on and take it off easily. Then you use their iPhone app to go and display whatever you're looking at. So there's actually more than one app. Uh, The main one is an app that goes and displays both the... It displays both the IR camera and the device also comes with a daylight camera for visible spectrum stuff. And it displays them overlapping and it uses uh, an edge detection filter on the daylight camera. So you can sort of see the the shapes and whatnot of what you're looking at. Because one, the, the IR sensor is not really high enough resolution that you'd be able to see things clearly. And two, even if it was, a lot of times things are the same temperature as each other, so you still might not be able to see them clearly. So the daylight uh, edge detection over on top of it is pretty useful there. So how do you get the temperature? Do you just click on the part of the screen that you're looking at or that you're looking for? So that you get the temperature, there's a you can either turn on or off spot checking. And the spot checking has a spot in the center of the image that it will tell you what the temperature is. Now, most most professional IR cameras, they're like most of FLIR's, the rest of FLIR's line. Uh, there's a, there's a periodic correction that needs to be made to the camera in order to be accurate on what the temperatures are. And this camera, you have to do that correction manually. So there's a little switch that you pull down to calibrate it at the on the back of the phone. And so you pull that down for a few seconds and then it becomes accurate again. And as soon as it's no longer accurate, it will give you the image the that there. So you can see like relative uh, differences in temperature of what you're looking at, but you can't get a specific temperature. Uh, but after you pull that down, the, the, temp- the spot temperature will come back up. So uh, what have you done with it so far? So the most recent thing that I did with it was check the temperature of my son's bath water. So we were giving him a bath, and we wanted to make sure that it wasn't too hot for him. And normally I have a different thermometer that I'll use, because using your hand is way too inaccurate. And using this is probably not as accurate as the using the the, the actual real like thermometer that I can stick in the water. But it does allow me to see... If I'm filling it up with water, I can see the hot water coming into the slightly cooler water and get an idea of how much it's permeating the the other water, how much it's mixing. You can watch the swirls, the hot and cold swirls, and have it see and see vortices and uh, water turbulent effects and everything like that. It's actually really cool to watch hot water and cold water mix. Does the app record video? It does record video, but like I said, it only does it at nine frames a second. Still, it'd be cool to post something. Yeah, some uh, I think I think I can post. Some, I'll I'll record a video later tonight and I'll put it in with the show notes. So why get this? Why get a FLIR? 
getting the FLIR is related to my history with uh, thermal cameras. Uh, are you aware of what my history is with all these cameras? In a very limited capacity. I, I know I've talk, talked very briefly to you about it, but... So, my history with thermal cameras is a long time ago, I worked on an autonomous vehicle. I mentioned that briefly last time. And for that autonomous vehicle, we noticed when we were doing some research that the temperature of the road is usually significantly different than things that are not on the road. So we got a thermal camera to try and, and I worked on some software to analyze that image and give sort of a probabilistic indicator of whether what was what different directions that we could head whether that was road or not based off of its thermal properties the the other time that i've used thermal cameras is when i was working for general atomics and i was working on a surveillance system that uses a tile display and integrates a ton of sensors uh so in that system we needed something that could look the thermal camera that could look about two kilometers away and it was purpose, its purpose was for viewing things at night as well as being able to find people that were using camouflage. And that sensor was really fun, but also costs like $250,000. So how does it compare between the FLIR that you have and <laughs> the stuff from GA? Like uh, what kind of resolution difference are we looking at here? The most expensive was obviously like the $200,000 one that was military grade and bulletproof and has a resolution, oddly, that's still not very high, only about 640 by 480, if that. The next better one was the Axion one, even though I we used it like 10 years ago. I think its resolution was around 160 by 120. It's possible that it could have been a little more than that, but I kind of doubt it. And the the major difference is that the military one was using incredibly expensive optics be- because of the problem that I had mentioned before, that, that the regular glass is not IR transparent. And you know how camera lenses can be expensive normally. Well, yeah. ones that are thermal IR transparent can be even more expensive. And a, and a lot of that cost is getting a huge, huge lens that enables the IR camera to be able to look out two kilometers, to zoom that far. And it was a continuous zoom, too. It wasn't just, like, out that far. Oh, so you're not only are you looking at a telephoto lens, but you're looking at a telephoto lens made out of material that's not regular glass that will right. actually deal with IR. Right. That ends up not only making it much more expensive, it also ends up making it gigantic, a gigantic device. Like the, the whole enclosure, well, the whole enclosure had a bunch of other stuff too, but the, it ends up making the camp, just the camera weigh like 50 pounds. Hmm. The one that, the one that I got, the more recent one is actually, actually not a bad little IR camera. Um, its resolution is not as high, but, there isn't that much reason to get, like, say, the Axion one over this one, despite the Axion one having a better res- resolution. Because most of the time when you're looking at IR imagery, you don't need, you don't need a lot of precision. So who do you recommend this for? People that would like it are any sort of geeky camera guy. Anyone that wants to do sort of little at-home science experience and has a little bit of disposable income would probably like it. 
people that can use it practically, though, campers, campers, it would be a good one for because you can go and there's generally no, there's many times no light out. And if you want to go and say, look at night wildlife, nocturnal wildlife, you have really very little way of finding it without disturbing it in, at nighttime because it would just go, those things would just go and hide. Uh, and other people that it would be practical for are contractors because you can go and diagnose heat problems pretty easily. You aim it at your piping system and you can follow the whole, uh, that you can follow the whole chain and see where the problem is. So, and, and I could use it or I used it earlier today to diagnose a heating problem here. Uh, our, my, I live in a condominium and so we have centralized heat and cooling and there's the the thing that does the cooling is a, a water pipe that then goes and the water pipe is used to cool the air and i could tell that it was not my unit's problem by following the the pipe that was supposed to carry the cold water and see that it was not in fact doing that so the the other person that the the other kind of person that would like it is basically my son i have never seen my son be so entertained by a gadget before he wanted to look at absolutely everything he went and was pointed at this and was like what's this temperature what's that temperature and wanted to see it all and i showed him the mixing hot water and cold water thing and he was like so amazed by the little swirls that showed up he 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 went and he put his hands on a water bottle and like would be so entertained that his, his fingerprints would stay on the water bottle and he put his hand on the wall and be so entertained that his that the heat would stay on the wall, stuff like that. So do you think the technology for this has any chance of following Moore's law and that it'll become cheaper and more miniaturized as time goes on? So I think that it's going to probably get cheaper. But if you look at the costs of the other... So, so, so this camera is $350, which is not cheap by the the standards of just buying a gadget because you feel like buying a gadget. So, it's, I mean, it's expensive for just buying yourself a fun toy, but it is extraordinarily cheap so far as infrared cameras go. Like I mentioned before, there is the $5,000 one that Axion had, and that wasn't much better than this, and the $200,000 one that, uh, that, we, that I played with with uh, General Atomics. And the other issue there is that FLIR is almost the only game in town. So it's actually kind of surprising that they bothered to make such a cheap device in the first place. So this is, this is, this is probably the most consumer facing, consumer focused FLIR camera that they've ever made. And that's probably why it's positioned at the price point that it actually is. And I think that they did that because they wanted to get the general consumer market. And I think that cheaper, better cameras in the future will depend on whether this camera is popular or not, because there's not really anyone else that makes them in any significant number. So earlier you talked about the Oculus camera. Why would there need to be an infrared camera within a VR headset? So previously with the, with the Oculus DK1, which is their first developer kit for the VR headset, they did not have an external camera. And it also 
could only track your head's orientation. In order to track the position of your head in, in addition to the orientation, you need some sort of other mechanism. And the mechanism that Oculus decided that would be more most appropriate for this model is uh, a camera that looks at you. Now, they didn't want to get all the information about you because that would be too much noise, so they put on a daylight camera filter and just had it and then put little uh ir emitting diodes in the on the device itself along with a ir transparent casing so you don't see the little lights and this allows them to have the camera pointing at your head and when you move your head forward you will it will track it and it will know that you're moving your head forward and you can get closer to that little flower that you're looking at in the vr environment this brings us to my other fun toys that I've been playing with. So I have three VR headsets now. I have the DK1, which is from Oculus, the Oculus Dev, Dev Kit 1. I have the Oculus Dev Kit 2, which they just put out fairly recently. And I picked up a Google Cardboard. Google Cardboard was given out at Google I.O. And so I have a question for you. Which of those three do you think that I like the best? See, I would say the DK2, simply because of all of the issues that they fixed with ghosting, the fact that it has head tracking, basically all of the functionality that would go into a VR headset that they've been working on. Right? So here's the harder question. Which do you think I like better, the DK1 or the Google Cardboard? Um... <laughs> Part of me wants to say the Google Cardboard because of the fact that you're even asking this. Yeah, well, that's that's too easy to read into. I I do actually like the Google Cardboard more than the more than the DK one, and there's a number of reasons for that. And some of these reasons actually make it are, are advantages that it has over the the DK two. Do you know Do you know much about the Google Cardboard? I mean, my understanding about the Google Cardboard is it's a piece of cardboard which you fold into place, which makes like a cardboard VR headset that you put your phone on. Am I correct? That is basically what it is. It, it, it comes in a little cardboard package that is flat, and you have to fold it into place yourself with little slats. And it comes with two lenses, and it comes with a little magnet that has a that is separated from a metal washer on the other side of the cardboard. And you put your phone inside it. When you use it, it, it ends up being a lot like those, um, the, a lot like those view masters. That would be the thing that I think it's sort of closest <laughs> to in, in appearance and usage. It uses that magnet that's there to, to basically click. So when you're using something, you pull down on the little metal washer and then it snaps back into place because there's a magnet there. And since the phone has a magnetometer on it, it can pick this up and registers in the application registers it as it's sort of like a click that lets you do stuff. So is it limited to any specific phones in general? I actually don't know. It has to be something about the size of a Nexus 5. Earlier I was talking about like, how I thought that there's definitely advantages that it has over the DK1, and I didn't actually get to that. So the advantages that it has is it has no wires. And this is actually a huge deal 
when you want to just quickly go and do something, it, there's a little bit of a annoyance when you because you have to go and get your phone and put it inside the stupid thing. But it has some Velcro, and that's not very difficult. But the lack of wires means that you're not feeling this thing on top of you. And there's no lengthy setup. I guess it's not that lengthy for the other one. But the the DK2, for example, has a set of wires and you plug in the there's there luckily there's no little control box like there was with the dk1 but you still have to plug in a camera you have to plug in the headset there there it splits from the headset wire into it forks into hdmi and a usb wire you have to plug both of those in and if you ever want to switch computers like if i want to switch from my pc to my mac to use it that's a that's a, a bunch of annoying things that i have to go and change and I don't have to do any of that with the cardboard. So how does the resolution compare between the DK1 and Google Cardboard? So that's the other thing. Like the, the resolution on the DK1 was only 1280 by 800. And that's, that's not per eye. So it's not looking at like, it's not like looking at a 1280 by 800 monitor. It, it's, Per eye, it's only 640 by 400, the original DK1, which, which gave you a horrible screen door effect that while the Google Cardboard still has a screen door effect, and so does the DK2, it's much less pronounced because of the quality of the screen on most cell phones, modern cell phones. Yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed with the DK1, that the effect is really good. It's just if you get past the point that you can see the individual pixel pixels really, really easily. Yeah, and that was one of the major issues with the DK1. It, it, it was very distracting seeing all of those giant pixels everywhere. So how much better is it on the DK2? The, the DK2 has the same resolution basically as a Nexus 5, which is 1920 by 1080, the standard 1080p resolution. Now this does end up being 960 by 1080 per eye, but it is definitely much improved screen door effect wise. It also has an improvement that now it's an, an OLED display on the DK2. And the funny thing is it's actually, I believe, the same exact display, including the housing of the Samsung Galaxy Note, which is, I believe, a result of the collaboration that Oculus and Samsung are doing. If I'm not mistaken, I think the collaboration happened after they decided to get that lens or that display. That's yeah, that's that's probably true. But it, it probably didn't hurt that they had started doing that collaboration in regards to shipping their products. I'm curious what the resolution will be on the final shipping product. I believe that they're either shooting for this the normal monitor, the normal high-end monitor resolution like your 30-inch Dell. Or hopefully they'll go higher up to 4K, but I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's more, the first consumer version anyway will probably have a, a monitor, a resolution that's similar to, to your 30 inch, the 2500 or whatever. An advantage of the OLED display though is the low persistence. Do you know what the low persistence is? Isn't, doesn't the low persistence have to do with the uh, refresh rate? That it, uh, that it does just a pulse? For say, you know, uh, a millisecond or so, and then it goes black. Yes. So low persistence is something that makes the display on for a short amount of time and then off for most of the amount, uh, rest of the time. Do you know? Do you know why it needs to do that? My guess is the ghosting effect. 
it is the ghosting effect. And the reason that it fi- helps fix the ghosting effect is the reason that the ghosting effects happen the f- in the first place. If you use the DTK1 and you're moving your eyes around, but you're not moving your head around, you'll notice that it doesn't blur. And when objects on the scene in the DK1 were moving around by themselves and you weren't moving your head, it didn't blur. So why did it blur when you moved your head? Well, the answer to that is when you're moving your head, your eye automatically tracks an object. That means that the light from particular pixels as you're moving your head, multiple multiple pixels are basically going to the same spot on your retina so if multiple pixels are going to the same spot, those uh, all basically get combined together by your eyeball sensor, and it ends up ghosting and blurring. With the low persistence, it's only on for a short amount of time than off. So as you move your head, only that one pixel hits that one spot on your retina, and it no longer blurs. So uh, do you get the same kind of noticeable blurring effect when you use Google, Google Cardboard? Yes. So... As far as I'm aware, there's no way to switch a Nexus 5 into low persistence mode. And if the display has no way of doing it, there's no way of getting rid of the the blur. So are there any areas where, I mean, Google Cardboard fell flat apart from the whole ghosting issue? Um, yes. Uh, there's no real... So, so it has no way of affixing itself to your head, for one. And... As a result, you have to hold it to your face, sort of like the Viewmaster, and that makes it that makes it good for things like its included software, but not so good for almost anything else. So, what included software was there on Google Cardboard? The included software, and there's actually some stuff on the App Store as well. I only tried a couple of them, but the included software was an app that had a bunch of sub apps, and the the sub apps were a tutorial a tour guide, a little cute cartoon, thing, a, basically a Google Earth, uh, YouTube, which is like a movie theater, uh, viewing your photospheres, and then Google Street View. Hmm. So my favorite of those apps is probably the one called Windy Day, which is a little cartoon. And it has a, a forest scene where there's a mouse that is chasing his hat around in a windy day. And it's really cute. It's fun to watch and it presents the 3d really well. And it, it, it sort of plays to all the advantages of Google cardboard. So where do you see VR going? I mean, do you think that people will be more likely to use the type of VR headsets that require custom hardware, such as the DK two or whatever Oculus ends up shipping? Or do you think there'll be more kind of ad hoc solutions like this? where people take something existing like a phone and just add amenities to it to make it more like a VR headset. What do you see gaining more traction? So the reason that Google was able to make something like this so quickly, I'm conjecturing here, the reason that they're they're able to make something like this so quickly is because of the research that Oculus had done and then published. So Oculus did a whole bunch of VR research and so did Valve, actually. And they basically made it available to the general public. And I'm sure that someone at Google was looking at the DK1 and thought, I could make one of these. Uh, but they couldn't have done that probably as easily if the DK1 hadn't come out beforehand. So 
I imagine that in the future, it won't be mostly like one-offs and hobbyist stuff. There has to be, in order to have improvement, someone that is someone that is better funded and doing and has actual full-time people on the research. And one of the disadvantages of Google Cardboard over the the both the DK1 and the DK2 is there's very little configurability and there's not really much that you can do about it. If your glasses if you wear glasses, there's nothing you can do. With the DK1 and D2K2, you can, well, I guess you could swap out the lens with Google Cardboard, but they're sort of embedded in that piece of cardboard. Uh, config, there's no configurability in the software for the Google Cardboard, as far as I'm aware. Maybe there is. You, you have to, you, you can't set the interpupillary distance. You, there's no projection of future times. One of the advantages of the Oculus one is it tries to predict where the headset is going to be in the future uh, and how it's moving and do your uh, scene projection based off of how it thinks that your head is going to move. This has very significant effects in you being able to use the device for any extended period of time. Uh, If you use the Google Cardboard, you will get sick much faster than if you're using the DK2 or even the DK1. See, I guess what I was asking was more along the lines of, in the future, do you think people will be looking for something that is good enough compared to something that is custom? Like, say, for instance, you know, the DK1 and the DK2, those are products that involve getting customized hardware in order to do this kind of VR. Do you see that eventually there will be a dedicated product like, you know, whatever Oculus ends up shipping that millions of people will end up buying? Or do you think something that's more general purpose, that's just an add-on to something existing like a phone? Now, before you answer that, you had said one of the disadvantages were the fact that if you wear glasses, there's, you know, tough luck, you can't really do anything. With something like cardboard, you could potentially order something with your lenses, you know, whatever your prescription is embedded into the cardboard. Yeah, yeah, and you and you and there was actually discussion of doing that with the uh, Oculus as well. Mm-hmm. The older version had three different levels of nearsightedness, and the new version only has two different version levels of nearsightedness. And there is definitely a lot of discussion on ordering custom Oculus lenses that match your prescription, so you can wear your glasses. Now, the Google Cardboard, you cannot wear your glasses with it. The Oculus is big enough that you can fit your glasses inside and still use your glasses if you don't want to wear contacts. But the the Cardboard, you you basically can't use it with glasses. You have to take them off. So do you think the killer app has been published yet when it comes to VR? Or do you think that's still in the future somewhere? I'm pretty sure that's still in the future. There's a lot of promising things. One thing that I've noticed is any VR with a cockpit, like if you're piloting a mech or if you're in a car, it's it's much more compelling than things where you're just walking around. And I think a lot of that has to do with there's always something sort of close to you that looks real, that brings you more into the experience. Whereas if you're walking around in a big environment you don't get as much of the effect until you walk right up next to that flower or fireball or whatever. So what do you think Facebook's goals are with this? It seems like a very odd pairing. And I think everyone is confused about that, including uh, including Carmack at first. But basically, their goals for VR are very similar 
to what Carmack has mentioned were his goals, eventual goals for VR, which is a giant interactive world. Basically, he feels that he and a lot of uh, computer programmers that deal with VR have a moral imperative to make something like... Uh, Snow Crash? Snow Crash, yeah. Something like Snow Crash happen. That's basically, I think, what Facebook wants to try and work towards as well. I'm, I'm sure they don't want the uh, apocalyptic society part of Snow Crash, but <laughs> the actual VR part of it, where everyone is able to interact, that, uh, that I think they want. And, and more recently, Ready Player One, though Ready Player One is more of a 80s nostalgia book, I think, <laughs> with some VR thrown in than it is an actual VR book, even though almost everything is set in the virtual world. <laughs> I'm seeing this evil Zuckerberg reading Snow Crash and wanting the apocalypse part. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the real re- that's the real reason Facebook wants to acquire <laughs> Oculus. They, they aren't interested in the VR. They just want the apocalypse. <laughs> And yeah. there goes my chances of getting hired by Oculus. Well, I guess I could talk more about it later after I have played with the new apps and whatnot. I mean, there's a lot of extra... There's a lot of stuff with the DK2 that is that is a significant improvement that I didn't really cover. So I guess we'll close off the show today. Uh, thanks for listening, and I guess we'll see you next week. You can find the show notes at alh.fm, and we can be contacted on Twitter at Aliens Land Here. And that's all. So how's your nerd marathon going? Uh, so far it's going okay. I actually, I signed up for lynda.com, did the whole intro to Java thing, which mostly it's been, it's very, very simple so far because a lot of it was just explaining the difference between complex objects in Java and, you know, actual things like integers and Booleans and all that kind of stuff. Stuff I already know. So that part I'm just kind of glossing over right now. Mm-hmm. The thing that I really was interested in within the tutorial, within the beginning stuff on Linda, was getting Eclipse started and, you know, basically just learning stuff about that, mm-hmm. which I'd never used Eclipse before, which it seems pretty nice. It seems like like Visual Studio yeah, in a lot and, of ways. And modern Eclipse is a lot better than it used to be. And, and Eclipse has always been way, way better for developing Java than developing in C++. Uh, I tried for a while when I was at General Atomics to, to use Eclipse for development of C++, in development in C++, and it is so, so slow. Mm. Uh, or at least it was 10 years ago. <laughs> so, so <laughs> slow uh, with C++ that that's why I had to end up moving to Slick Edit because it's another cross-platform IDE. And that's where I stuck for basically the rest of the time I developed any of the C++ stuff for GA. It might be worth going back to. I mean, if you ever are doing, you know, that kind of coding again. It's a mistake that people often do where they try something once, it sucks many, many years ago, and then they never go back to it. I think of things like Linux on the desktop and uh, Firefox being memory heavy. Linux on the desktop is also interesting in that every two or three years... Someone says, it's ready now. You can use it. You can use it as your regular desktop. And then people try it and go, no, I still have to configure these 10 things by editing a text file. 
Yeah, I mean, that's fair, but it's still a whole lot better than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a lot better than it used to be. But it's been better than it used to be for a long time, and it's still not as good as even Windows for using it as a desktop OS. I mean, it's obviously far superior for using it as anything other than a desktop, but for I can't help but think... I can't help but think that people's standards are changing as well. That as the operating systems within Windows and Mac get better, that people get used to that level of polish, which simply doesn't exist on Linux. Yeah, clearly. I mean, in order to be viable, you can't be, oh, it's better now. It's now as good as you were 10 years ago. You you can't do that. You have to be as good as things are now. <laughs> yeah, I still can't run apps at all. But uh, yeah, I get this nifty. You're I'm using free software. Yes, I have warm fuzzies. I'm not pirating my software anymore by using free software. Yay! <laughs> so so has have you used IntelliJ at all? No, no, I haven't. Okay. So in IntelliJ is what Android Studio is based off of. I find it, at least for working with Android stuff, to be much nicer than Eclipse. I And I, I did actually try very, very, very briefly. I guess Android Studio was released about a year ago, so it was a year ago. I tried Eclipse and Android Studio side by side, and, and, and Android Studio is definitely a better environment for getting that stuff done. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, depending on how long I'm going to take this out, or how long I'm going to uh, keep going at this, I'm probably going to go into Android Studio and possibly make an Android app. Yeah, you should definitely do that. Though you may very well be extremely frustrated like I was. For example, like if you go and do research on getting started with Android apps, half the tutorials are using Eclipse and half the tutorials are using Android Studio. You never know which one that you want to use. You have to do things like import the old files and old old projects uh, that you're using as examples. And then you have other nonsense that you have to deal with. Like, So I use using Android Studio, and I was trying to build my Android app and put in, uh, I think, some networking or something like that. And I converted the project to Android Studio, and it wouldn't build at all. And it turned out that... It was Android Studio just decided, okay, I'm going to use the unreleased L as my basis, but L doesn't have these things yet, but we're going to try and compile them as dependencies anyway. Let's just make you not be able to compile. And I, so I, uh. in order to even, in order to even get a sample project working on Android Studio, I had to go and Google and find something on Stack Overflow that helped me out. Yeah. I mean, that sounds about right. I, I know uh, how many times I've looked up specific errors within Java so far, even doing just simple things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, it takes a bit of time getting used to going back to a language that's quote unquote, a real language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in PHP, everything is kind of implicit. You're not dealing with actual types. Mm-hmm. You're just dealing with variables, which are the equivalent of a variant within something like Visual Basic. Yeah, I am very glad that I don't deal with untyped languages for the most part. I mean, I love, I love typed languages. I, you know, I love it in practice. But then there are some things that bother me. Like, for instance, in Java, it took me forever to realize that, oh, I'm doing a string comparison and why won't it work? Mm-hmm. Why won't the string comparison work? And it turns out that it's because you're comparing, you're comparing the objects. Yeah, you need to use the actual string comparison operator in order to, c- to compare them, yeah. 
Oh, actually, you need to use, in Java, you need to use the method called equals. Right, right. Well, that, that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant by the operator, the, the function that you call. Yeah, and I was looking at this thinking, well, wouldn't they overload it at least? Wouldn't you think they would overload the string? Everything is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the movie? Yes, I've seen the it movie. <laughs> it's funny. Tanya didn't like it that much. Really? I thought it was, yeah. I, there were parts of it where I was just going, oh, wow. It was great. Well, and the references in there were great, too. Like, I, when I saw the Kragle, and it was the whole this, crazy yeah. glue, uh, right. I'm like, V'ger! V'ger, yes. Yes. Well, wait, was it the Kragle or Crackle? Kragle. Kragle, it was Kragle? Or, okay. Because of crazy glue. Right, right. But I thought that for some reason they said Crackle. No, uh, the Kragle. Oh, Kragle. See, I watch... Okay, that's Yeah, what I watch Kragle or Kragle. Because um, I watch movies with subtitles on. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it makes it a lot easier if you want to say something that you don't have to pause or rewind or whatever. Yeah. That you can actually, you know, you can interject and you're looking at the screen and you're reading what uh, they're saying. Well, we saw it in the theater. Okay. We got referred, we got a reference from, I think it's uh, Tanya's masseuse said, yeah, you should see this movie. Mm-hmm. It's for kids, but it has appeal to adults, too. Oh, it is, it is definitely good. Did you see, see yeah. Wreck-It Ralph? Yeah, yeah. That one has a that one has a a lot of good references too. I actually went to the theater for that one. Oh, okay, and yeah. their and their first person segment was like spot on. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, that's that's great. This is just how it is in the arcade. Is there any talk of a sequel to that? I imagine there will be one. Did you know that there is a, actually a Wreck It Ralph video game in Disneyland? No, I didn't know that. I mean, it wasn't there until after the movie, but it is like in the old 8-bit arcade style. I played the, um, there's a version on iOS for Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, okay. It might be the same game, I don't know. Or Fix, it's called Fix-It Felix. Oh, Fix-It Felix, yeah. 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 Maybe maybe it was Fix-It Felix that that the cabinet is at Disneyland. Yeah. I was hoping for the whole, like, sound effects that go along with it. Like, I can fix it, which it didn't, didn't seem to have, have on the iOS Aww. version. It it might be because the voice actors end up getting more money if it's if, if their <laughs> any, voice any is within the game. Any sort of royalties that they have, yeah. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. bye. <laughs>